Well, good morning. You'll notice I'm not coming to you from my office today. I'm at home. And in fact, for me, I'm at home and my kids are in bed. That's because my home is a little too noisy for this kind of thing. I've got seven kids. My house is pretty crazy right now. My wife took the kids for a walk the other day and she ran into a lady. The lady saw Anne with all the kids and she said, I, I thought school was canceled. Nope, just our family, not a school field trip. So my house is not a good environment for this. We're all a bit stir crazy. We're all getting a little bit tired of being together 24-7. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're a bit tired of your house or maybe you're a bit tired of being alone. Or you're a bit tired of watching TV or whatever you're doing to fill in your time. We're all a bit tired. And as it turns out, that's exactly what I want us to talk about today. How we're feeling gets to the heart of what we want to talk about today. Maybe you're like my family, feeling stir-crazy. Maybe you're just feeling lonely. And since we've been at this a while, maybe all the frustration and anger and loneliness is, is showing up in ways that you're just not proud of. Maybe you find yourself making bad decisions, letting this whole situation get the best of you. Because unless you're a superhero or a decorated war veteran, then stress does not bring out the best in you. Stress tends to bring out the worst parts of each of us. And it's easy and helpful for us to be able to blame these kinds of things on a pandemic. It's easy for us to blame our bad decisions, our little slip-ups on our situation. Oh, well, when things get back to normal, I'll be fine. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're really honest, all these kinds of things, these bad habits, this anger, this frustration, daytime drinking, whatever it is for you, it's always with us. It lurks just under the surface. And most of the time, we can hold our junk together enough that all that bad stuff doesn't show up or it only shows up a little bit. But when we're squeezed, when we're backed up against the wall, what shows up? That's what we want to explore today. And we're certainly not alone in feeling all these things and feeling this tension. I, I can't decide if it's helpful or not to think about the fact that all over the world, people are experiencing the same things we are. In fact, I found this cartoon online just this week. In case you can't read it, the woman is on the phone and she says, Yeah, I'm just alone with my demons, but it turns out they're actually pretty good company. Well... For us, being alone with or being confronted by our demons is not as enjoyable as this cartoon makes it seem. The, the pleasure or the stress relief might be enjoyable for a fleeting moment, but it's ultimately destructive. And we've been in this series called The Waiting Game. We've been learning all about how to wait well, how to wait without letting sin overtake us. We've learned about what we have to wait with, the things God has given us, and we've learned some things we could use to wait with. We've talked about waiting with confident faith, knowing that God has given us what we need, and he's going to continue to see us through a time of waiting. We've talked about waiting with the word, the power that God has given us to do his will. And we talked about waiting with courage, giving each other encouragement during our waiting time. And throughout this book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is guiding the Thessalonian church as they wait. And for them, they were focused on waiting for the return of Christ. In fact, this letter has a great deal to teach us about that important doctrine, the return of Jesus. We're going to tackle that next Sunday. We'll talk all about the return of Christ, what the Bible teaches us about that glorious event. But this morning, our study is all about waiting with holiness. That's the key idea we're going to explore this morning. It's going to help us address 
how we wake up each day and live while we wait. Ground floor holiness that shows up in our thoughts and in our behavior. And this idea, this biblical command to be holy, that's a big command. It often feels a bit punitive, like someone wagging their finger at you. Be holy or else. In fact, why don't you take a second to do some finger wagging. Turn to somebody who's with you and wag your finger at them. If you're alone, you can just smack your own hand and say, be holy. Go ahead. I'll wait. That doesn't feel very good, does it? And more to the point, it's not very helpful, is it? Finger wagging is not going to make you change your life. So as we come at this idea of waiting with holiness, we got to make sure we really understand it. Because even though it's a command, if we start trying to apply that command to our behavior, starting from the outside in, we're not going to get very far. In fact, we're not going to get far enough. We might have enough willpower to be able to change for a time, to change one habit or, or small changes, but we won't get to the core of what it means to be holy and the core of what we need in order to be holy. So this morning, I want to break down this idea, this idea to, to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And this week I saw that the, the Pulitzer Prize Committee gave out their awards. The, the Pulitzer, it goes to top quality journalism and writing. And journalists, they're trained to, to break a story down into parts. If you want to be clear on the topic, you have to ask and answer some key questions. They call them the, the five W's. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And it turns out that answering all those same questions about our holiness give us a clear understanding of how we should live in a way that pleases God. So we're going to start with the what. And for that, we'll start at the beginning of the chapter. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So the first thing this passage teaches us about holiness is that we should do it. Holiness is something we should pursue. Notice here, Paul tells us to live in such a way as to please God. That's our goal. Do this even more, he says. And yet you'll notice, he says, you're already doing it. So this kind of seems like more of the, the be holy finger wagging. Do it, and then do it again, and again. Like, how is this helpful, right? But one thing that is helpful is to understand a bit about where Paul is coming from. If we, if we step back from just this verse, if we look at the, the whole of the Bible, then this command to, to do more, to be holy, it comes into focus in a really helpful way. And it starts by understanding this whole idea of holiness. Holiness means not just our behavior, but it has to do with our whole self, or our heart attitude that shows up as our behavior. So see, holiness is something that speaks to our core, not just to our behavior. That's part of the reason that, that finger wagging and saying, be holy, is not helpful. Because that addresses our behavior, but not our core, our heart issue. So that's one important thing about holiness. It's, it's about our heart. Now, another important thing to realize is that holiness is not something we can manufacture. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work to change this or change that about ourselves, we can't make ourselves holy. We can't manufacture it. It's given to us. Holiness is part of God. It's, it's who God is. And God chooses who to give his holiness to. No one else can be holy. In fact, 
The Bible even tells us there's no one holy like the Lord. So we can't become holy on our own. Holiness has to be given to us by God. That's important to understand. And there's more. So some good news is the fact that God does, in fact, choose to give his holiness to us. Part of the reason Christ came was to make sinful people holy, people like you and me. His death and resurrection, when it's applied to people like you and me, sinful people, then it makes us holy. Christ's death takes our sin away and gives us his righteousness. God gives us holiness because Christ redeems us from sin. So, Holiness has to do with our whole selves. It's something that only God can give us, and yet God chooses to give it to us through Christ. So when we put all those truths together, then it's actually harder to understand what Paul was saying here in 1 Thessalonians. Be holy doesn't seem like something to aspire to, something to work on. It seems like something we just have, a gift from God. And yet we know ourselves. We live with ourselves and we know the kinds of things we're capable of. We know that we're not holy. So, so how do we put all these ideas together? Well, again, when we look at the whole Bible, we understand that holiness comes in a couple of ways. One is what we might call positional holiness. The Bible word for it is justification. That means we've been declared by God to be holy. We've been made righteous. And justification is just what we described. God is holy, and he gives us his holiness. So when you start a relationship with Jesus, you're asking God to apply Christ's work to your life. And boom, just like that, you're holy, justified. Your position moves from sinful to holy. It's, it's an amazing gift of grace. Yet at the same time, the Bible still tells us to live in such a way as to please God. That means we have to live in to our holiness. So we're positionally holy, we're justified, but we also have to begin to live in a way that aligns to that position. Our core is holy, but we have to begin to align our behavior to that holiness. And we call this process sanctification, being made holy. So one thing that's very important for us to understand is that we are holy. Any of us who have a relationship with Jesus, we've been given justification. We've been made holy. And just coming to terms with that truth, that fundamental truth about God's work in our lives, that already puts an end to the finger-wagging behavior management kind of holiness. And in fact, Jesus demonstrates this in a very dramatic way. You may be familiar with the story. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's, he's suffering in order to make us holy, to take away sin. And there's two criminals who are also executed with him, one on each side. And one of the criminals begins to mock Jesus, to taunt him. He doesn't understand that Jesus had to suffer and die. But the other criminal has a different response. Listen to what the story says. But the other answered him, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? We're punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Boom, just like that, this criminal goes from full of sin to full of holiness. Now understand, he was a criminal being executed for his crimes. He has no chance to clean up his act, no chance to make a right choice. He's literally nailed in place. Yet Jesus assures him that he'll have a place among the holy when he dies. 
That's justification. That's critical for us to understand. God gives us holiness apart from anything, apart from our behavior. So the what of holiness is simply that you and I are made holy by Christ's work on our behalf, apart from anything we can do. And yet Paul tells us right here, do this more and more. In other words, let your behavior live up to this positional holiness you've been given. So even though we've been made fully holy, fully righteous, there's still an expectation that we'll live up to that, that our behavior reflects that. And that leads us into the next section, the next thing we need to understand about this command. So we understand the, the what, be holy, grow into the holiness God has declared for us. And now we look at the how. How are we supposed to live out this command, to, to, to live in such a way as to please God? For that, let's look at the next section of 1 Thessalonians 4. Look with me at verse 3. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So this gets into the meat of what Paul wants to tell the Thessalonian church, the how to be holy. And even though God has given us holiness, we still need to see it show up in our behavior. That's the how of holiness. And in different of Paul's letters, he has a different list of behaviors than he does here. He addresses different churches with different lists. So, so this list is not necessarily exhaustive. Now, there may be some things on this list that you really struggle with and that you need to hear today. And there may be some things on this list that you don't have a particular challenge with right now. But the key here, the real meat of the how comes at the end of this paragraph. God has called us to live in holiness. God's will for us is our sanctification. So that means God's will for us is that we'll keep growing in our holiness. We've been justified, and God wants us to keep growing into that state of full holiness. And since it's God's will, he's provided a way for it to happen. God's not just waiting on us to decide that we want to grow. He's willed it. And that means he's working to make it happen, putting us in situations where we're forced to grow and giving us relationships and tools like the Bible that help us to grow. So even in this challenging time of quarantine, this time that can bring out the worst in us, part of what God is doing is growing us, putting us in a place where we have to confront these darker parts of ourselves. We have to do something different. And he's pointing us to growth in holiness, sanctification. And so we come to the where of what it means to wait with holiness. The where. Look with me at verse 9. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you, because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you're doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. When I was first preparing this message, I thought about calling it horizontal holiness. I wanted to call it that because of this section that we just read. 
Paul tells us the where of living on our holiness, of living in a way to please God. It happens horizontally. It happens when we live out our relationships with each other. We reflect the holiness of God most clearly in the way that we relate to each other. Horizontal holiness. And specifically, that horizontal holiness shows up in, in three spheres or three locations. First of all, it shows up in the church, in our faith family. Verse 9 tells us about brotherly love. You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. See, loving each other, that's the first place holiness shows up. It shows up in the church, one another. And one thing that's worth noting in this verse is that Paul uses two different words for love in here. We talked in the first week of this series about the fact that there's more than one word for love in Greek. There's phileo, the, the brotherly love. And Paul starts off the verse with that word about phileo. You don't mean, need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to agape one another. He pulls that second word for love at the end, agape. So he starts with brotherly love, but he says the way for the church to achieve that is by practicing agape. That's that sacrificial love, the Christ-like love that puts others' needs ahead of our own. And it's critically important that this kind of love shows up in the church. Jesus himself tells us this, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, he says, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the way the world understands God, understands Jesus, understands holiness, comes from how the church lives out this love, love for each other. The way we relate to each other is what God uses to show the world the truth about himself. So this is just one more encouragement for us as a church to prioritize our relationships with each other. So we live out holiness in our faith family, and we do it primarily through loving each other, sacrificially. The way we interact with each other is perhaps the clearest way that people understand what the gospel is all about. So the church is one sphere, and yet Paul goes on to mention other places where our holiness shows up. Look with me at verse 10. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. We've talked over the past couple of weeks about how this church in Thessalonica was an example to other churches in the area, in Macedonia. And we've talked about how we too can be that kind of church, an example in our valley, not because we're better than other churches, it's not a competition, but because we understand the gospel, we're letting it work in us. We understand God's gift of grace and how he's freely given to us. So we could be an example in things like love, generosity, and grace, and truth setting a standard for those kinds of things, and then raising the standard. There's so much more impact that God's church can have in this valley. We can do it even more. This church in Thessalonica, they set the standard for their area, and my hope is that our church can too, if we keep living in a way that pleases God. The third sphere where this holiness shows up is in the world as a whole. It starts in our own faith family, how we relate to each other, how we relate to other churches, to God's people in our valley. And then finally, look at verse 11 with me. Do this even more. Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. 
Paul speaks of the impact of our living to please God, that it, what it can have on our community, how our holiness should show up in a way that others can see, behaving properly in the presence of outsiders. And that idea, behaving properly, is increasingly challenging right now. We're, we're living in unprecedented times with outsiders dictating how we are to live in a way that's never happened before. It's hard. It's hard not to want to rebel against some things. I mean, everybody has different opinions about how to handle the situation. There's public shaming, all kinds of challenges. But God's Word directs us to behave properly in the presence of outsiders. And God Himself is going to reveal to us exactly what that means, what proper behavior really looks like. But we can rest in the fact that God is still in control. He is sovereign over nations and governments and viruses and everything else. And we could trust the fact that God has used this situation to challenge the church out of complacency and stagnation into a new reality, when our presence in the valley is going to become more and more critical. How we live in our community becomes the most visible piece of the church in our valley. Our holiness, practiced properly in the presence of outsiders, it's more important than it's ever been. So we've discussed the what how and the where of what it means to wait with holiness. And the next part of Paul's letter tells us a very important why. Why is living with holiness important? The very next section of the letter tells us. Paul talks extensively about the reality that Jesus will return. He will come back. He talks so much about it. It warrants lots of good discussion. We're going to talk about it next Sunday, like I mentioned before. We'll talk in detail. But for now, it provides an answer to the why of waiting with holiness. Why should we concern ourselves with living in a way that pleases God? And the answer is because he will return and he will judge the whole earth. In fact, Paul says the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It will happen unexpectedly. So we need to live ready, be ready. In some sense, this truth about the return of Christ, it answers two questions for us. It tells us why holiness matters, because Jesus will return just as he promised. But it also helps answer the question of when. And it's not when because we know when Jesus will return, but it tells us that the when is right now. Now is the time for us to live in holiness, to live in a way that pleases God, because we don't know when he'll return. It'll happen suddenly. So we've explored the what, the how, the where, the why, and even the when of living in a way that pleases God. But there's one more question to answer, one very important piece we need to understand. If we are going to live in a way that pleases God, we need to understand the who of holiness. Who. And it might seem like the who is obvious. Us. I mean, personal holiness. Who else would it be, right? But I want us to notice one more thing about this passage we've looked at today. Look back with me at verse 1. Additionally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. And notice a little farther down, verse 8, Paul tells us this. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And these two verses woven into this passage all about our personal holiness is the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that answers the question of who. Our holiness ultimately is a gift from God, not a work of ourselves. Our strategy, then, for living in a way to please God is to trust Him, to, to look to Him, 
to prioritize our relationship with him and let the triune God work in us to make us more like him, to make us holy. God the Father sent his son Jesus to make us holy. The Holy Spirit continues that work in our lives to convict us of sin, to encourage us with his word, to give us everything we need to grow into that positional holiness, to live in such a way that pleases God. So understanding the who puts an end to finger-wagging to try to manage our behavior on our own and failing at that. We look to him and let him who justifies us also sanctify us, to work in us, to make us holy. He lets us live into the holiness that he's already given us. Theologian Lewis Sperry Chafer talks about this same idea. He says there's over 150 passages in the New Testament describing the fact that God is the one who makes us holy. And our role is simply to believe, to exercise faith. Now, our temptation is to try to do it on our own, to try to add something of our own to God's work. But Chafer, he goes on to say this. Now, there are constantly those who are insisting that there must be something added to this one simple requirement of believing. You must believe and repent, or you must believe and pray, and so on, he says. But dear friend, if that were true, if anything were to be added to this one requirement of believing then every one of these 150 passages are incomplete. And if that were true, then when Christ told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, that Christ was only telling Nicodemus a part of the truth, left him stranded without knowing it all. He goes on, he says, When Paul and Silas said to that Philippian jailer, when he asked, What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your household, and you shall be saved. Were they giving him only a partial statement? Are they to be reprimanded for having misguided this poor man and leaving something so important out? Schaefer goes on to say this, Look at the great elements that make up our salvation. Our name is written in heaven. Our eternal life is bestowed. Our sins are forgiven. We're clothed in the righteousness of God. Who's going to do this? God said he will do it through Jesus Christ. It's made possible on the grounds of what Christ did for us on the cross. Therefore, I can't add anything. There's nothing for me to cooperate in. There's not some teamwork here in which I do my part and he does his part. I fall helplessly and hopelessly at his feet and into his hands and his arms. I simply commit myself to the saving grace of God as it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. He never refused one who came like that. Therefore, once more, I leave the word definitely, definitely upon you today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. God alone gives us what we need for living in a way that pleases him. And the Holy Spirit in us guides us to give us what we need to do this more and more. It's the work of God in our lives that makes us ready for his return. So understanding the who, what, when, why, where, and how of living to please God, it helps us know how to confront sin in our lives, how to relate to each other, and how to relate to the whole world. And it turns out that we have all we need to live in a way that pleases God. We have God's powerful word. We have his Holy Spirit to guide us in growth. We have the work of Christ on our behalf to remove our sinful nature and replace it with a heart that can focus on him. And as a church, as we collectively wait, we have even more. We have faithful leadership that's guiding our church to this challenging time. 
We have each other to encourage, to challenge, and to love. We have everything we need. The very end of this chapter tells us one more command. It tells us, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I hope that you are encouraged, even in a difficult time, even when the quarantine has been extended, is dragging on, even when we begin to see the worst versions of ourselves emerge. We can encourage one another with these truths. We have all that we need. So we might even say, we don't need to wait. Our waiting game is a time for us to stay active, to stay focused, to stay connected to God, and let Him continue His good work in us. As a church, as individual believers, we have all that we need to live in a way that pleases God and to do it more and more until He returns. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for what you've done for us. Uh, we are humbled that you have chosen to give us holiness, that you have justified us, made us righteous, not because of what we did, but because of what you did on our behalf. And we're even more grateful, too, to think that you didn't just leave us like that, but you give us your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to, to help us to grow into that position, that justification that you've given us, to sanctify us, making us holy. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you return, when you take your church, and we are fully holy without any sin, without any temptation, because we'll be in your presence forever, uh, absorbing your glory and reflecting it back to you. And I pray that in the meantime, you help us to live well in the presence of our valley. And in this time, more and more than ever before, let our holiness be the thing that people are uh, seeing in us and are drawn to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.